My scripture reading for this morning comes from Hebrews 9. I'll be reading verses 27 and 28. Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. Hear now God's word. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear a second time without sin, unto salvation. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's pray, asking the Lord to teach us from his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you have given to us your word, which is perfect and true, inspired and infallible and inerrant. We pray that you would help us to understand your words today we pray that through your spirit, you would apply these things to our hearts. We ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open and receptive to your message. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm getting older. <clears throat> My hair is gray. I feel less frisky. I get AARP cards in the mail all the time. And now information about Medicare, and when I see people that I haven't seen for a while, they'll say, aren't you retired yet? As some of you know, our grandchildren count grows. We have 25 grandchildren that we're delighted about, but it also is a reminder of age. Ben Franklin once said that there are only two things certain in life, death, and taxes, and I guess that's true, and part of that is addressed in our text today. First, in verse 27, you see man's certain destiny, death and judgment. Verse 27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, man's certain destiny, death and judgment. Concerning death, it is appointed unto man once to die. The scripture speaks repeatedly of death and the certainty of death. And so in Genesis 2, verse 17, with reference to eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord says to Adam and Eve, the day you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. And there's a reference to spiritual death and then flowing from it, physical death. In Romans 5.12, Paul says that sin entered the world by one man and death by sin and death passed to all because all have sinned. In Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the wages of sin is death. And we read this morning responsibly from Psalm 90, which is a, a wonderful and beautiful psalm. It is a prayer 
of Moses, and the first verses of the psalm contrast the eternality of God, who is from everlasting and has no beginning, with human mortality and judgment that comes upon sinful human beings. And then in Psalm 90, verses 9 and 10, we are reminded that the days of our lives are 70 years, or if reason of strength, 80 years. And that's a pretty good summary. So if you look at actuarial tables, that's pretty accurate. Some people don't live that long. Some people live longer. Grandma Schultz lived to be 100, but she was the only one of the bunch that hit triple digits. The days of our lives, Scripture tells us, are 70, maybe 80 years. That's how long we have on this earth. And then Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may present a heart of wisdom. In other words, there is wisdom that comes by understanding our mortality. Teach us to number our days. And so as a homeschool project, we'd have our children, you know, calculate how many days there are in a year and how many years that they might have allotted to them. Maybe it'll be less, maybe more, who knows. But number your days because with an understanding of mortality comes wisdom. Reflecting on our end brings wisdom. Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. The psalmist says, Make me to know my end, the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. As human beings, we're frail, we're finite, we're mortal, and there's wisdom that comes in knowing that estate. You watch football, and I like to watch football. If someone makes a good play, they'll pose, and you know, uh, you get the sense that they're invincible and all powerful, and maybe they had a great play, but ultimately, we're finite and limited and frail, and there's wisdom with understanding that. Notice that the scripture says, once to die. So there's no reincarnation. Every once in a while, people will get um, really interested in reincarnation because it means you come back and you do other stuff and fun stuff, and then you come back again. But if you understand Eastern philosophy where reincarnation is taught, it's a curse because you live and you suffer and you die and you come back and you live and you suffer and you die over and over again. Scripture tells us once to die. Notice our verse tells us that it is appointed for man once to die. Our days are in God's hand. It's appointment is a reminder of God's sovereignty. Indeed, we're told in Psalm 139, verse 16, that our days are written in God's book. And so man's certain destiny, first death, and then second, from the latter part of verse 27, judgment. But after this, the judgment. 
There is a coming day of judgment. In Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, we're told that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. Judgment is coming, and it can be a fearful and intimidating thing. Don't worry about the government officials, Jesus said. Fear the one who can destroy the body and soul in hell, Matthew 10, 28. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, Hebrews 10, verse 31. In fact, if you look over at Hebrews 10, verse 31, you see this scripture. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But lest you be concerned and inordinately fearful, look at the consolation that comes in verse 39. But we are not of them who draw back onto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So the Christian looking at judgment has no fear because of the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a coming judgment, and the doctrine of final judgment have, has profound social consequences. When people no longer believe in a coming judgment, well, they involve themselves in all kinds of mischief. The historian Paul Johnson argues that there is a correlation between a declining view or expectation of hell and the rise of statist law. When people say, there's no judgment, I don't care, I can do whatever I want, then all of a sudden you have to have more and more laws to make sure that people don't run crazy, steal everything, and kill everybody. Robert Dabney, a famous Presbyterian minister of the 1800s who used to preach right here in the 1860s, said that he didn't like big government and he didn't like big business because neither one had a soul to damn or a backside to kick. And that's a, a really interesting quote. In other words, the idea is that there are a couple of things that help incentivize responsible behavior. One is to have an everlasting soul that can be subject to condemnation. Right, and if you have a soul and you're worried about the coming judgment, you might behave yourself. But even if you don't have an everlasting soul, if you have a backside, if you have a corporal body, you might be encouraged to do the right thing or to avoid the, the wrong thing. So if the deer come to eat my wife's roses and I can get them with the slingshot, they run away. They come back and they still eat the roses. But nonetheless, I don't know if deer have souls, but they do have backsides and you can scare them away at least for a little bit. But when people no longer fear the coming judgment, there's no restraint on human behavior. The doctrine of a coming judgment can be evangelistic. As the Apostle Paul told the philosophers in Athens, 
God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ. A judgment is coming, Paul told those philosophers, and God is commanding you all to repent. Man's certain destiny, death and judgment, from verse 27. A second thing we see in verse 28 is Christ's perfect work. Verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now notice here, first of all, this emphasis on once. It is appointed once for us to die, and Christ died once. He once offered up himself to bear the sins of many. That refers to his first coming and his redemptive work. He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus Christ is our perfect priest. He is our perfect sacrifice. Verse 25. Not yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once... At the end of the world, he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In other words, Jesus made a sacrifice for sin one time. Unlike with the Jewish priests who had to come all the time, making more sacrifices and more offerings because those offerings weren't perfect and complete and enduring but Christ offered himself once. Or if you compare it to the Roman Catholic system where there would be a frequency of offerings, the reformers emphasized that Jesus Christ once and for all paid the penalty for sin. He bore our sins. He bore the sins of many. And his offering was propitiatory, a substitutionary sacrifice. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. By his stripes we are healed. Or as Paul says, I deliver to you as a first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and raised again according to the scriptures. He offered himself once at the end of the age, verse 26. Or if you want to see this emphasis on the one-time offering Look at Hebrews 10, starting with verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering hath he perfected forever them that are being sanctified. And so Jesus once offered himself as a one-time sacrifice, which was completely sufficient for all times, and he did it at the end of the ages, as it were, from verse 26 in the end of the world and he made that offering and it was perfect and complete. Now Hebrews 9.28 also refers to the second coming and his triumphant return. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus is coming again. He's not coming to make redemption again. He's not coming to offer himself as a sacrifice without sin, no cross this time, no dealing with sin. The scriptures oftentimes talk about the humiliation of Christ, his suffering, the suffering and death and burial. But the scriptures also talk about his exaltation, his triumph, his glory, in his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, his being seated at the Father's right hand, and his return in power and glory. And so as we read at the beginning of Hebrews, when he had purged sins, he sat down at the right hand on high. And so Jesus is coming again. He's coming in triumph. He's coming victorious. He's coming in glory. And there's tremendous consolation for us in that. As Jesus told his disciples in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 3 of John 14. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may also be. And so Jesus came to make sacrifice for our sins, the sins of many, and he is coming again and will receive us unto him. Christ's perfect work. Now, the third thing I'll draw your attention to is the Christian's sure confidence. And I'll draw your attention to a clause in verse 28. So Christ was offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And so there are those who look forward to the coming of Jesus. There are those who look with anticipation on his return 
unto salvation. There's a reference here to Christians who are saved by the blood of the Lamb looking ahead to the return of Christ. We eagerly await the return of Christ. We don't fear the coming judgment. We don't fear the future. We don't fear death because of our confidence in Jesus Christ. Why can you look ahead with confidence? Well, first, because your salvation, Christian, was secured by Christ at the cross. And that's the meaning of verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Or listen to Hebrews 1 verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. There's something amazing about the power and glory of Jesus Christ when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so first, Christian, your salvation was secured by Christ at the cross. Second, your salvation is guaranteed by God. And not only has God guaranteed it, he's made an oath by himself to deliver what he's promised. Hebrews 6, verses 17 through 19. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. In other words, God has promised. God doesn't lie. God's bound himself by an oath. God has guaranteed your salvation. Your salvation, Christian, is protected by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7, starting with verse 24. But this man because he continues forever as an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So Jesus not only died on the cross, but Jesus now lives to intercede for you and to pray for you. And if you sometimes feel weak and impotent and not very faithful and prone to fall, prone to wander, then it's really good to have a high priest who is able to save them to the uttermost 
that come unto God by him. He is the uttermost Savior. He is the one who intercedes for you. He is always making petition before his Father for you, Christian, and can save to the uttermost. And your salvation is embraced by faith. Hebrews 10, verse 39. Let's look at this verse again. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And the gospel message is not how much you can do or what you can accomplish or how righteous you are because we confess that our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. God simply appeals to us to come by faith and our salvation is through faith in our perfect Savior Jesus Christ and because of his perfect redeeming work. Now let me close with a few points of application. Looking at Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, first, reflect on your own mortality. The scripture teaches that it is appointed unto men once to die. Psalm 90 tells us, that we should number our days because it presents to us a heart of wisdom. Elsewhere in the Psalms, we're told that to know our end and to know our frailty and to know our weakness gives to us wisdom in the presence of God. And so we should number our days. We are a fragile, fearful, and mortal people, but the Lord gives us help. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, we read this, and it's wonderful encouragement for us mortals. Hebrews 2, verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver them who through fear of bondage were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so we're told that Jesus took on flesh and Jesus died and Jesus will deliver us who are subject to fear of death because Jesus is our perfect high priest. Reflect on your own mortality. Remember Christ's finished work. The redemptive work of Jesus Christ is complete. It's sufficient. It is effectual. His purpose in coming to this earth was to save sinners and to pay the penalty for our sins. And so in Hebrews 9.28, we read that he was offered once to bear the sins 
of many. And so, Christian, take encouragement in this, that Jesus Christ bore your sins in his body on Calvary's tree. And his work is perfect, it's complete, it is finished. There's nothing more to add to the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Now, the Lord calls you to faithfulness. The Lord calls you to good works. The Lord calls you to obedience. But that is never the reason for your salvation. You are saved because of God's grace through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, which is embraced by faith alone. Look to Jesus Christ and what he's done. I think I mentioned before a wonderful work by Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist of the 1700s in America. And it was a sermon series he preached to his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, on the history of the work of redemption. And so for half a year, he preached on a text from Isaiah, and he talked about God's history of the work of redemption. Going back to scriptures that talked about the eternal counsel and purposes of God before time began, through his work through the Old Testament, to the coming of Jesus Christ through the work of God's people in the New Testament, through the history of the church, and finally the consummation of all things. And it's this wonderful, glorious overview of what God did in purposing to save a people in Jesus Christ. It was, I found it to be a really encouraging work. Remember the perfect, finished, complete, once-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty, Christian, for your sin. And finally, place your trust in Jesus Christ. There are two certainties, death and judgment, and you don't want to face God alone in your sins on Judgment Day because it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, I remember this vividly from my youth. I was in a Sunday school class. Deacon Jones was talking about hell, and he was talking about hell as a consequence for everyone who was a sinner. And I wasn't that old, but I knew I was a sinner. And I knew what the Scriptures taught about the righteousness of God and the wages of sin and the uncertainty about the future and more precisely the certainty of what would happen in the future for someone without Christ. That was the motivation to, to bring me to confess Jesus Christ as my Savior. Christians put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Christians then are secure in the hands of God who in Christ saves us and delivers us and pers preserves us.
Christians are the ones who are protected by Jesus, who is our intercessor, and who holds us in his hands as the good shepherd. Indeed, the scripture teaches us that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have forgiveness of sins and redemption through his blood, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Let's pray. God, our Father, we're thankful for the promises of Scripture. We're thankful for the promises of the gospel. We're thankful for your eternal purpose in preparing your Son to come to this earth to save sinners. We know that we are fallen and mortal creatures, and we know that if the Lord tarries, we will die. There is death and then there is judgment, but we are thankful that Christ our Savior died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That his death was once, was for all time, was all sufficient, and was perfectly efficacious. We pray that you would help us to look ahead to the future. And whether we meet the Lord in the air or whether we die first, we pray that you would give to us an expectation about the coming of our Lord, confident that he has prepared a place for us and that he is coming again and will receive us unto himself, that where he is, we may also be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.